This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. There is a venomous political partisanship, wild economic swings, and now with the coronavirus, a global and deadly pandemic upending nearly every aspect of daily life. But my guest today sees a brighter future ahead, if we can just make it through this decade. George Friedman is a well-known geopolitical forecaster and strategist on international affairs. He is founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, and he is the author of several books, including his latest, The Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord and the Coming Crisis of the 2020s and the Triumph Beyond. In it, he argues that the 2020s will indeed see a dramatic upheaval and reshaping of American government, foreign policy, economics, and culture. But then a period of prosperity and confidence will follow. Welcome to Deep Dish, George. It's great to have you on. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start with this current period, the period that you call the storm. Um, In many ways, you're not particularly surprised by the kinds of politics and issues and conflict that has emerged today. Why is it that you see this is actually foreseeable and somewhat even predictable? Well, there's a pattern in American history. Uh, Every 50 years ago, sometimes 80 years in one cycle, we go through a rebuilding of America. America was an invented country. And like all invented things, they have cycles and moods and so on. Uh, This is far from the worst discord we've seen, even though each time we believe it's never been this bad. It's been this bad many times. So help me understand what you see as these cycles that uh, define the shape and progress of history. Well, to begin with, uh, we have to understand that we've created a machine, invented it, uh, invented the politics, invented the people, invented really the uh, geography of this country. And that machine is roaring forward. And like all machines, it has cycles that calm down, rise up. One of them is the institutional cycle. Every 80 years, uh, our institutions change. In the Civil War, the relationship between the state and federal government changed. World War II, the state between the federal government and society changed. And then every 50 years, we run into an economic and social crisis that tears the country apart, lasts for about a decade, and then rebuilds itself in you. So as we look at these two cycles, let's unpack them in terms of what you see going on. What is the crisis that is currently manifest itself in each of these cycles? And also what's likely to come through the other side? So let's, let's start maybe with the socioeconomic cycle. What, what's happening with that one right now? Well, looking at the last cycle, the one that began with, Ron, began with Ronald Reagan, it was tremendously success, uh, successful. It created investment capital. It created a entire class of technocrats built around the microchip. We've reached the end of that cycle, and now we have money that owns almost no interest, uh, money that can't find investment. And the class that lost, the industrial working class, is at odds with the technocracy that grew up. They hate each other. And what we got from that, of course, was Donald Trump, who understood the anger that had grown up in America and exploited it very effectively, while the other class was sort of oblivious to it. And, and what's driving that anger? What, what's the disconnect here between those two groups? Well, the industrial working class had been the centerpiece of American society. 
uh, the they were the middle class, the lower middle class. They were the ones who had fought World War II and then created this industrial giant. Their position declined. Uh, their explanation is their jobs are shipped to China. Another explanation was that their jobs are obsolete as things become America. Whatever it is, they are furiously angry. They feel they have been betrayed. They feel their culture is held in contempt. Uh, Hillary Clinton's deplorable comment did not help the situation at all. And they feel that no one represents them, that other classes, other people all are concerned about somebody, somebody else, but nobody cares about them. The situation is that of the black uh, urban middle class in the 1960s and 70s when the family fell apart and drug addiction had become commonplace. That's happened in the Midwest. Uh, Most babies now are born out of wedlock. The opioid addiction was rampant. We were in a situation of major social upheaval, but the coasts that voted for Hillary Clinton, West Coast and the Northeast, didn't know that, didn't understand that. Plus their values are under attack. These are people who believed that homosexuality was a sin, premarital sex was a sin, and so on. And they were now regarded as homophobes. What had been 20 years ago, the normal view of the world, was now devalued. So inevitably they rose as classes rose in the past. And who did they see as the, as the target of that anger? Who do they see as responsible for um, that dynamic that you just described? Well, I mean, they saw the, geographically, it was the coasts. Uh, the West Coast and the Northeast down to North Carolina. And the people in this class of what I call the technocrats, the people who made large amounts of money uh, using their minds to build things like uh, computer programs, uh, university professors, journalists, who had felt themselves as uh, entitled, that they had a kind of understanding of the future, which they may well have had. But they saw these people as not only uh, undermining their economic interests, but holding them in contempt. And when you take a look at the election of uh, last, the last election in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the West Coast. She won the uh, Northeast down to North Carolina. But between the Appalachians and the Rocky Mountains, she won only three states, New Mexico, Colorado, and Illinois. That area between the two mountain ranges is where the industrial working class really lived, where they suffered, and where the anger grew up. So a vast area of America geographically was at odds with uh, the coasts. So we've got that going on on the socioeconomic side in the, uh, the cycle. And at the same time, and one of the things that you point out is these cycles are actually coming together during the 20s. You've got the other cycle that you point out and, and, and elaborate, which is the institutional cycle. What do you mean by the institutional cycle and what is that moment today? Well, the federal government was invented to have relationships with the states. Uh, it then evolved after World War II into having control over... Uh, the economy and society. It backed off after a while, but it was legitimate for it to intrude. And at first it did it brilliantly. 
it used expertise to define programs and things that were absolutely necessary. But like all things, they went too far. The expertise they had had one enormous weakness. And that enormous weakness is that uh, the experts know the parts superbly. But there was no one there to fit the parts together. The complexity of legislation, the complexity of regulations was incomprehensible to both of us. It was known in pieces to the technocracy, but there was no one to stand there and say, guys, you can't have a 15,000 page set of regulations on healthcare. Nobody, including you guys, understands the whole thing. And in this sense, the federal government, which had been very successful in doing this, slowly went out of control. The second part of it is this. The First Amendment, we always speak of the right to life, to um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, these things, freedom of press. It also has a piece, the right to petition the government. It is impossible for the ordinary citizen any longer to petition the government because that person you may encounter in a social security office or wherever you're going to go has no authority to use common sense to help you. The regulations that have been written by the experts that they've never met bind their hands. So a constitutional right in the First Amendment, the right to petition the government has become null and void. And people feel totally helpless in the face of the federal government neither understanding the rules nor really having the right to ask for an exception. And that's a normal process. You've gone to from a very useful thing, one World War II, to something that drove expansion for decades and has exhausted itself. And so now there are rebellions against it, a dislike of the federal government, a feeling that the federal government doesn't serve people, combined with a sense of alienation between classes of societies. And that sort of happened in the 1970s. It happened in the 1930s. These things happen. We're going to work through it. Let's talk a little bit about that process of, of working through it. Do you see that the conflicts that our politics are based around right now, as you've, you've said, it's, it's an expression of this, are they going to get worse? Are there new dimensions that you expect to emerge in the conflicts uh, at the point of exhaustion of these two cycles that you've just pointed to? Well, we're at the very beginning of this. The Trump presidency is not important except as a symbol of the resentment, very much as the Nixon presidency was that, and also let in catastrophe for Nixon, at least, and close to it for Trump. So we're beginning to define the problem. We have not yet gotten our arms around the problem. is, And we we're going to spend the next rest of this decade uh, trying to define the economic problem we're facing, trying to define the institutional problem we're facing, and it will intensify and intensify through presidents until finally we get a president who probably doesn't have no idea what he's going to do any more than Roosevelt did or Reagan did. Uh, he's going to take control, do what he has to do, and change substantially the way America works. One of the things that I find really interesting in, in your book is that, well, those politicians may not have figured it out yet. You're actually 
pretty specific about what you see as as the challenges are, which we've been talking a little bit about, but what the nature of the problem is that needs to be solved and the direction that you expect things to go in. So what is that? What do you see as those fundamental riddles that have to be addressed and what the direction of those solutions will be? Well, let's put in two parts. First, the institutional. Um, we've lost the people who used to be our intermediary with the federal government, party bosses. My father went in, uh, he didn't get his insurance money for once and went on to a boss in uh, the Bronx, New York, and a phone call was made and the money was paid. There's no one that can speak for us. The primaries, in introduction to the primaries, did two damaging things. The first is that because only a small fraction of the population actually vote in them. And they are normally ideologues. They, toward the end of the cycle, they began to produce very strange outcomes, outcomes you wouldn't have expected. So the idea was in the primaries, okay, everybody would vote and we'd have democracy, but what we get is the election by a minority of our candidates. The second thing it did is it got rid of the guys who had enough power and an interest in representing citizens to the government who could call a congressman and say, uh, I've got a constituent here and he's broken his leg and he can't get any money. Could you fix that for me? And the guy would. So we hated the party bosses. They were corrupt. Yes. But you're going to pay the price one way or the other. No one's corrupt now, but you can't get anything done. The second thing that we have to face is that we're in a transitional stage. In the 1970s, the auto industry became mature. There was no great processes there. General Motors still existed. It was the great company. It would exist forever. It would never fail. Well, it did. We're now in the same position with the microchip. The microchip is 50 years old, which is about how old the automobile was in 1965. We are no longer talking about great revolutions, but we're talking about them, not seeing them. Uh, we're talking about the iPhone will now come in black, just as the cars are now have fins. We are at the tail end of what is no longer cutting edge technology. It is a marketing system and it's running its course. The new technology hasn't yet emerged. So on the one side, productivity has fallen. The growth, productivity growth has fallen consistently since 1995 or so. And at the same time, and this is interesting, our helplessness, which I have, I come back to all the time, which is not anything that's existed before in front of the federal government, is really startling. Now, if you have a corporation and you have a lobbyist, you can get something done. But if you're you and I, uh, we are victims of regulations that we never even knew existed. So what's the answer to that problem? Well, the, the answer to the problem is a number of things. Firstly, uh, breaking the tyranny of regulation, reintroducing common sense. Uh, the person sitting at that desk has got to have some authority to exercise reason. Certainly, he or she will make mistakes, but the mistake of not being able to do anything for you is great. The second thing is that we really have to examine the culture of the microchip. Microchip enabled the internet and so on and so forth, and that's creaking as an industry. Apple is now trying to sell movies. 
Uh, Facebook is facing antitrust suits everywhere. This culture that emerged out of the microchip is facing its not terminal crisis. It'll be here forever, but it's facing a fundamental crisis. And there will be a struggle with, for a while where investors can't find any new technologies to invest in. Interest rates go down to near zero. Retirees can't get any money from the bank if they put their savings there. So all this comes together, and that has to be solved by new technology. And one of the things that has to change is the university. The university, after World War II, uh, had the GI Bill. And people went to these universities like Harvard, Henry Kissinger did, who and no one had ever gone to these universities. They were closed entities. Over the past 10 or 15 years, they became closed again. Uh, the chances of a kid from a high school in Arkansas getting into Yale are not outstanding. Interestingly, Harvard had a questionnaire of about what kind of students should be admitted. This was for the committee admitting them. Is this a student you'd like to have lunch with? Is this a student you'd like to room with? And so on and so forth. It's like an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. <laughs> where, where, where is he the right kind of fellow? The universities in knowledge-based society are critical institutions for passing on that knowledge. And they become inaccessible to the vast majority of people. Only a few hundred veterans of the Iraq wars were ever admitted to the top 35 universities. So we have a crisis in the university. Add to that that $1.6 billion in debt has allowed them to continue raising tuitions. And this is now the central entity of, the, of society, which is driving out ideologies, uh, creating the opportunity to get to know people from Goldman Sachs, and creating what they always have, kind of communities of power. But the people from the Midwest... They're excluded. They, they don't get to go there. Imagine a young woman from the Midwest who is anti-abortion and wants to come to Harvard and organize anti-abortion groups. Uh, how likely is she to get in? Yet so many people in America feel that way. I'm not saying that she's right. I'm saying that only three people at Harvard in a recent survey voted for Donald Trump. What's interesting is that 48% of the American public voted for it. The universities absolutely are disconnected from any but the Northeast and the West Coast, if you will. So one of the things that's really striking to, to me in the argument that, that you've laid out so far in this conversation is the deep dysfunctions and challenges of the current, uh, the current cycles. And yet... One of the things that's striking about your your book, and it's captured in the in the subtitle, is um, you know you talk about the, the the coming crisis of the 2020s and the triumph beyond. And I want to I want to unpack why do you think that there is going to be triumph beyond? Because one of the narratives that you know uh, exists right now, in particular is that geopolitically there's a big shift happening and the dynamism of the United States that has positioned us to be so successful uh, economically, socially, geopolitically in the world um, 
is passing us by. And, and people point to many of the same things that you've just named as the things that are, are going to prevent us from being able to, to rise to this challenge and be successful in a period of, of competition. So why do you see the U.S. being able to actually successfully address all of these um, of, of these challenges as opposed to be, as so often happens, you know, great civilizations come and go, and this is just our downward cycle. Well, they come and go, but not fast. I have to go back to history. Look at the 1970s. We lost the Vietnam War. Everybody was saying that the United States was in decline and the Soviet Union was rising. Interest rates were 18%. That's what I paid for my first home. Inflation was a 12%. Uh it was clear to everyone that the best days were behind us. As we worked through the entire process, we transformed our political system. The Roosevelt era began with Roosevelt, had as its last president, if you will. I mean, first it had Richard Nixon said, we are all Keynesians now. Jimmy Carter didn't understand that the problem was capital shortage. That's why interest rates are so high. And Ronald Reagan came in. And he basically did something that was utterly immoral, not cut taxes for the middle class, but cut taxes for the rich. As a result of that, the United States had a massive climb in productivity. As the microchip came in, there was investment capital supported and so on. But remember that Ronald Reagan was regarded as a monster. We can go back to previous periods where very similar things had, and that will happen here as well. But you should also remember some things about the United States. We are by far the largest economy in the world. And not China, certainly not after what we've seen recently, is in no position to come close to us, let alone pass us. Secondly, uh, we are the largest importer of the world, importer, which makes us both insulated from what happens in the world and able to produce tremendous force on economies, do what we want. And then, of course, we are the largest military in the world. Like in the 1970s, where everybody was announcing that the United States was finished, or the 1930s in the Great Depression, where people were saying that. I mean, we have an interesting culture. Unless everything is super terrific, we're in decline. The Europeans, of course, always want to see us in decline because it makes it feel better. But the fact of the matter is, the crisis of the 1970s was more intense by far. The crisis of the 1930s was staggeringly more intensive. In both of these, we were convinced that we were finished. As for the institutional crises, I mean, we got through the Civil War pretty well. 650,000 died. 35 years later, the United States was producing half the uh, manufactured goods in the world. It's a fairly amazing event to happen. So when you understand the United States, you understand the underlying power and you understand the speed at which it metabolizes problems as speed which new solutions emerge. Unlike other countries who go in decline and stay in decline, the founders created a society built on invention. They invented the federal government as a machine. They invented our public, this endless ways of migration into the, that they expected, and they invented in a way the geography. 
the entire meaning of the Mississippi River or the Erie Canal changed what it is that we see in the country, as did the Eisenhower Highway System. So the interstate changed everything. We are a country built on change. Change necessarily involves failure and recovery. Every time we fail, we expect that we're finished, and that gives us the energy to survive. As for what the rest of the world believes, they always believe that England was about to collapse. I'm sure they were sure that Rome was going to go down. It's going to be a long time for us. Uh, that'll be great news to, to many folks listening. I, I want to, in terms of this transformation and coming through this set of crises, um, where would you encourage our listeners to look for those transformations, that the emergence of the technology that can provide uh, a pathway for the future, the emergence of the, of the institutional changes uh, that are needed? Um, where should they where should they see that stuff developing over time? Well, you can see hints of it. And you saw it in this election where it was proposed by several candidates that we have single payer health care. That would mean that the federal government would determine the price they would pay to doctors. It means the kind of health care you have available. And the rejection, uh, the way it was pushed aside by most of the public, they did not they did not trust the federal government to be able to do this efficiently. Partly this is the distrust that was built into our founding, but partly is an experience of how well the federal government does things. Healthcare is fundamental to all of our interests. The idea that we would wind up going to a person at a counter, they would tell us what we were eligible for, and there would be no appeal. Just wreck that. So whereas previously Medicare, Medicaid, these things were able to go through, they're accepted. The increasing desire to control vast areas of the economy were resisted this time. They did, they did not even carry the Democratic Party, let alone Republicans. Uh, institutionally, we're looking at the primary system. And the primary system has produced some very interesting presidents, Donald Trump. Uh, it is done it because his enthusiasts voted for him. So we have to restructure, and I think we saw that in Iowa, and that's just a symbol of what it meant. We have to restructure how we select presidents. It used to be that political leaders selected them, the establishment, as Bernie Sanders. Well, they gave us Dwight Eisenhower, Truman, FDR, uh, Wilson. These are not half bad politicians. So. It is not clear to me that the current system of election is inherently superior to the one that was there. And I think that the Iowa caucuses, although they were in primaries, really raised the question, just how far are we going to go on self-selected people choosing leaders? And I think that's going to be a critical problem. The other thing you're looking at is universities are under severe pressure on two fronts. First, they finance themselves through government loans to their students, and the students can't pay them back, and that allows them to continue to raise uh, tuition rates. And secondly, they're under pressure over the question of what are they teaching? Uh, who are they admitting? The nonsense about uh, you know movie stars bribing tennis coaches to let them in is the tip of the iceberg. For the average citizen, there is no bribing your way in. 
how do you get in? So all of these closed doors are going to be kicked open in the same way that Ronald Reagan kicked open the doors to investment capital and FDR kicked open the door to jobs. So in this period of contestation and conflict, what role do you see for the average citizen or anyone else? Is this something where you just sit back and uh, these things will emerge through elite contestation? Or is there something that, that individuals can actually do in order to help shape and have an impact on, the, on this playing out and getting to the uh, period of triumph and through the crisis? Well, let's take a look at Roosevelt. It was the individual citizen, not the established powers, that demanded that something be done for them in the Depression. Remember, the Republican Party had the basic view that these people were lazy and didn't want to work. And it was the average citizen they created Franklin Roosevelt. During the 1970s, the period where you could not buy a house at a period at which uh, inflation was ruining your ability to live a normal life, it was the people who elected Ronald Reagan, who basically said to Jimmy Carter, you're continuing to demand that we do the same thing that didn't work. Uh, I'll go for a guy who's an actor, who's not particularly articulate, and he didn't lead them out, but he followed the people. So the people will, during this period, become angry at their helplessness of the federal go- in front of the federal government, uh, become angry at uh, the situation in universities, will become frustrated at what's become with social media and all these things. And that pressure will drive the political system forward. It's not that you're leaning back. Is that no particular individual can be overwhelmingly powerful, but the forces are already shaping themselves. George Friedman, author of The Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s and the Triumph Beyond. I want to thank you so much for being on Deep Dish and also for doing the risky and challenging things of looking into the future and helping us understand how it may unfold. Thanks for being on Deep Dish. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment to tap share and send it to them. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.